This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. In 1961, the perception of most Americans is that we had little hope that we could match the Soviet Union in the space race. They got up the first satellite, Sputnik, and Yuri Gagarin was the first man in space. So what hope could there be that we'd be the first to reach the moon? I mean, even the administrator of NASA said it couldn't be done. But that skepticism changed after JFK threw down one of the most historic speeches ever. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. It is May 19th, and I'm John Dunn. And no, today we're not talking about space although that would be cool, maybe someday, we are talking about No-Kill 2025. And there was certainly a lot of skepticism about us ever reaching a No-Kill Nation, where every community is saving 90% of the animals. So what do you do about that? Salt Lake City, how are you? At the Best Friends National Conference, Julie Castle, now CEO of Best Friends, got on stage for the closing keynote. Unbeknownst to most in the crowd, including a lot of Best Friends staff, Julie threw down a moonshot speech of her own. Our moonshot is to end the killing of animals in America's shelters by 2025. <laughs> 2025. In every city, in every township, in every community, in every county, in every state, in every nook and, and cranny around this country by the year 2025. Obviously speeches, even the good ones, don't automatically wipe out skepticism that people might feel. I mean, JFK didn't leave Rice Stadium that day with the nation entirely behind him. But they do inspire, and they can impact us in a way to make us believe something we once thought to be impossible to be possible. It re-energized us and lit another spark under our board to go to that next step. Now that's McKenna Yarbrough. Today, she's a Best Friends employee coordinating life-saving from Washington, D.C. to Florida and as far west as Mississippi. Sitting in that audience in Salt Lake City in 2016, she was in her previous role as the executive director of the Lynchburg Humane Society. Now, before I knew McKenna, I'm not sure I'd ever even heard of this central Virginia town. The city of Lynchburg is an old historic town that in its heyday was where a lot of the shoes were made um, in the country. So that's your random fact for the day in case that comes up in your pub trivia. When McKenna arrived, the save rate was 49%. She previously worked for the Charlottesville Abemarle SPCA and the Richmond SPCA. And when she got to Lynchburg, she raised serious money to build a new facility. And life-saving went up. And I believe we ended the, the first year at about mid-70s, next year's 80s. We went to no-kill pretty quick, like in three years. But it's the speech, she says, that took this organization that was already no-kill and pushed them to do more 
looking to areas of the state that needed help. We cannot just sit in Lynchburg on our laurels. We have to do more. We cannot just be a no-kill community. We have to help the state go no-kill. We started to bringing in more animals from at-risk shelters from Southwest Virginia. And we had some targeted counties that we really wanted to help. Our intake shot up by a thousand animals. Listen, I know this is gonna sound like a lot of self-congratulatory BS. There ain't no shame in this. This is the Best Friends podcast after all. But this story of No Kill 2025 and what it's inspired to this point is the real deal. And while you and I are still getting to know each other, I hope you've realized I will always tell it to you straight. There's no propaganda, and it's absolutely not about taking the credit. To be very clear, No Kill 2025 might be the inspiration, and Best Friends certainly provides assistance, but it's the organizations and the people that work there that make it happen. When we came back, the, the board and the executive staff members established a long-range plan, and that plan was to establish regional programs, was the first one, strengthen community awareness of you know some of the issues that surround animal welfare, we wanted to obviously maintain our no-kill status and then grow our intervention programs within our own community and surrounding counties. Now, Jill Mollahan is the current associate director at LHS. There's a lot of places in Virginia that can't help themselves. And then throughout the years, we have just spread that to the states around us. And even, you know, we're helping shelters in Georgia. and We've helped, helped shelters in, you know, Alabama. Jill says they're constantly looking for ways they can support others, Again, just pushing themselves. Whatever we can do to help. We've helped animals as far as California. Now, one super cool thing that LHS is doing these days is what's being called the Life-Saving Academy. More than rescuing animals across borders, it's about sharing knowledge. So they bring in staff from communities across the country that have big life-saving gaps to help mentor them with things like managed intake, foster, and volunteer programs. They fly to Lynchburg for the academy, but that's just the first step. You know, I don't know that they were on board at all when they came here. I really don't think that they thought it was possible for them. It was almost like we're coming here to prove that this isn't going to happen. And literally they walked in and they had their arms crossed and they were all guarded and they were like, we're not, you know, this isn't, this isn't for us. Now these communities need a little help, a little training. And just like McKenna and the LHS staff got from Julie at the 2016 Best Friends National Conference, they need a little inspiration. To the end of the week saying, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to go home and try all these things and tell such and such, you know, about this new program that we learned here and, and take all this information that you guys have provided us and, and share it with the rest of the staff. So you want to do this, expand your life-saving efforts, but how do you face your fears? What do you do when you're facing an uncomfortable, scary prospect? You cannot continue to think about what if, what if, what if, you know, what if I get this pet in and we've had a history of getting puppies from these people that, and they always have parvo. Okay. Are we not going to help them? Yeah, we're going to help them, but now we're prepared. So we know that we need to isolate, you know? So you just have to be creative, not overthink everything and just think of the bottom line of, I, we need to save more pets. Now, true to form, Jill says she's happy to help you work through these issues. I'd be thrilled to do an email intro. Email us at podcast at bestfriends.org. I first met Brent Tolner, I actually don't remember when. Everything that happened prior to COVID-19 feels like a hundred years ago. But it was sometime back in the late aughts. Brent was a blogger covering all sorts of animal welfare issues. I was doing social media for Best Friends. 
I think I was still maintaining a MySpace page, if that helps you understand how long ago it was. Now, Brent and his wife, Michelle, created the Kansas City Pet Project, an organization that took on the contract for the city's animal shelter, and they helped lead that community to no kill. Fast forward, yada yada, and Brent's now at Best Friends and has been a central figure leading the No Kill 2025 effort. So who better to talk to about this than Brent Tolder, the Senior Director of National Programs for Best Friends. Didn't get any questions ahead of time like I was promised. Like this is some gotcha journalism program or something. I promised to get you questions ahead of time? Yeah. Well, you you were born prepared. This is uh, your world. So why don't we start by you giving me the genesis of 2025. I mean, I suppose uh, we should start at the conference. Like, let's start there. Well, yeah, let's start at the conference. Um, so the 2025 date really started back at the Best Friends National Conference in July of 2016. You know, No Kill had been a thing for a while. It's something that we'd all been talking about. And, but I think the sense of urgency for making this happen was probably it was needed. And so Julie Castle at the closing speech of the national conference for best friends in Salt Lake city, um, put the stake in the ground and said that best friends was going to help make the nation no kill by 2025. And so that's where this was worn out of. Well, and, uh, 2025, I mean, it's a good sounding date. It rolls off the tongue, but why 2025, not 2022, 2030. Yeah. Um, 2030 felt probably more like the the right timing for this uh, and yet not necessarily the the right sense of urgency for what we would have and so i think 2025 was enough time that we felt like it felt believable and yet with still a sense of urgency for um, being able to move the movement and and accelerate some things that were already in motion at the time. I remember that conference vividly, but I actually don't remember hanging out with you. But I do remember <laughs> that speech, you know, set against the JFK moonshot speech. And one part in particular has always stuck with me, which is where JFK talked about going to the moon and that it would take alloys that we don't know yet. So to build that rocket, to go to the moon, we're going to have to develop like new, who new, who knows? Mm -hmm. And that's 2025, right? Julie announces it. And at that time, there were a hell of a lot of unknowns. Well, it is. And I think it's really funny. So I was there and I was in the audience. So not even as a best friend's uh, employee yet. And uh, I thought at the time it sounded like a, a bit of a crazy date that it seemed like it was really accelerated. And I, I, called Julie not long after. And I was like, that seems kind of crazy, like not very believable. Um, how do you expect to do it and, and pull this off? And she's like, well, we're not sure yet. So she was very honest about it. We're not sure yet. We're still working on the plan for that. Uh, and it was kind of through the course of that conversation, I ended up um, finding my way to best friends. And you found your way to best friends and being involved with the very project that you weren't sure we could pull off. Exactly. Julie made me believe that it was going to be something that we could do and that we could pull off. And in the course of my conversation with Julie, it really came across that, you know, there were a lot of shelter directors out there that knew they could do better, wanted to do better. And while there's no shortage of people that were telling them that they should do better, there was really a shortage of people that were willing to roll up their sleeves and help them. And, you know, Best Friends was very well positioned to be that organization that would help shelters who wanted to do better, improve their processes, improve what they needed to do to become no-kill. And that was something I wanted to be a part of. Uh, so I 
kind of raise my hand and say, if that's what you are looking to do, I would, I would love to be a part of it. You know, we didn't just, Julie just didn't get on stage and say, Hey, we're going to do this and good luck to you. Right. It was, Hey, we're going to do this. And how can we help? And let's look at what you're doing. We've got some ideas. You've got some ideas. Let's make it happen. So do you remember the kind of initial strategy, the things that were put together and put in motion? That's a really good point that you make about it not being a, like, you all need to do this. It was like, you all are doing great work. How can we supplement and fill in the gaps for it? And I think that was a really important part of it. But I think the initial stages of this were really figuring out where those gaps were. So I think it's hard, you know, especially in best friends world where we have so much data at our disposal now to think back to 2016 and realize that at that point in time, we didn't even know how many shelters there were in the country. The idea that we started this process without even a clear understanding of the number of brick and mortar shelters in this country, we didn't know the number of animals that were really dying. Do we know currently how many shelters there are? Yeah, there are just under 5,000 brick and mortar shelters in the United States. And we know that now. And so like part of the thing that we did was start building out what has become the most comprehensive data set that exists in all of animal welfare in the history of animal welfare, uh, of not only where the shelters are uh, and who the organizations are that run it, but then also how many animals they're taking in, how many animals are uh, leaving alive and by what outcomes, and then also which ones are still slipping through the cracks and, and, and being killed in our nation's shelters. And it was really that process of starting to gather all the data is where a lot of this started because you can't solve a problem if you don't know exactly where it is and, and the scope and nature of it. And so that was really step one was starting to build out this data set to identify problems and challenges. So we have this task in front of us, gathering all of this data. And at that time, you're saying we didn't know something as seemingly simple as the number of shelters. So what was the process of going about getting all of that gathered? So the finding out the number of shelters was really going through every resource that was available, doing a lot of Google searching and just starting to pull together, like where are the, the shelters in the country, providing a master list of those. Uh, when you found holes of places that look like there should be a shelter, but you couldn't find any electronic footprint for it, it was calling some of our network partners and saying, hey, like, we know you live in that area. Tell us what shelters are there. I mean, that's a hell of an effort. I just, I know this because I just Googled. There are 3,000 <laughs> counties in the United States. So yes. if there's, I don't even know, whatever, even a 10% gap in that it's a hell of a lot of data and, and stuff to research. Yeah. And then once you get all of those, then you have to fill in the numbers for what's going on there. So it takes, you know, going to local data sources. We're lucky that there are a lot of states like Missouri and Michigan that have statewide reporting structures. So you're able to get a lot of data on every shelter very quickly. But then a lot of it's just phone calls or uh, sending Freedom of Information Act requests to get the data from the different municipalities. You know, whatever source we could find, we would dig in and, and pull that data into our system to get a better understanding of what was going on. So we have this data now. We've got this, it's probably just one spreadsheet, I imagine. <laughs> no, it's a, we've got a huge data lake that it all lives in uh, with some access tools to pull the information back out of it. We have all this data. We at least now understand how many shelters <laughs> and where they are, but what do we do with that? How are we then saying, okay, well, this many animals are being killed here, this many here. Well, now what? So we divided it up just for our ability to carve out the problem and be able to diagnose the problem, we separated the groups into essentially four tiers. So we have a tier one, which are the top 100 shelters. And when I say top 100 shelters, those are the 
100 shelters that are killing the most animals uh, that could be saved. Then we have the next tier of shelters, which are tier two shelters, which is anything that's any shelter that has a life-saving gap uh, between 1,400 and 500 animals. So anything that falls into that falls into tier two. And then any shelter that has a life-saving gap, so the gap to 90% of less than 500 animals, is a tier three shelter. And we started looking at, so, okay, if you have a larger life-saving gap. Those are obviously the shelters that need a lot more support. What types of programs do they need? And really it starts with then going in and visiting a lot of those shelters and starting to diagnose where their challenges are. Some of these shelters are just struggling because they're a ton of animals coming in and they just don't have a lot of resources to manage that. And so they have significant resource issues. Sometimes they don't have either the knowledge or the capacity for different programmatic solutions that would help save the lives. You know, it might be a law that's standing in the way about how they might be able to manage uh, feral and community cat colonies. Uh, Being able to diagnose where those challenges are and then being able to create solutions for those has been a big part of uh, solving for that life-saving gap. Then for some of the tier two, a lot of those will fall in. We'll be able to provide some of that more one-on-one support, but we don't have the bandwidth to go visit all 5,000 shelters in the country. Then it becomes more challenging for the tier three shelters of like, how do you reach all of those? How do you visit every shelter that, like some of these are shelters that have 300 animals that come in a year or less, and we don't have the bandwidth to go visit all of them. And and so it's at that point, it's like, how do we create the resources that we can provide out to these organizations uh, so they can learn the life-saving programs that they need to learn from or connect them with one of our partners? And so that's really honestly where the fourth tier is. So I talked about the four tiers. We've got the tier one, two, and three. The tier four are the shelters that are already no-kill. And so there are nearly 2,000 shelters that are no-kill out there. Many of them have great programs, great leadership, uh, with the capacity to expand beyond their four walls. And so we're really reaching out to those folks for that. Well, let's start with Tier 1. Okay. Um, Obviously, this is the highest priority, as you said. They're killing the most animals. Give me a an example. Give me a give me a community that was in this Tier 1, maybe a, the higher end of the Tier 1. Yeah, so what was crazy is when we first came through, we started pulling the data, there's one shelter that really jumped out at us. And it was the shelter, the Palm Valley Animal Society uh, uh, down in Edinburgh, Texas. And it was a shelter that was not on anyone's radar. It's not really that large of a community. Well, they serve a fairly large population of just under a million people. Edinburgh, Texas itself is only about 40,000 population. Uh, For geography's sake, in the point of Texas if you will. I don't know what you call that, that little point that goes all the way down. If you're familiar with kind of Corpus Christi, Galveston, south of Houston, it's all the way in that little point, right? It's five hours south of Houston, which I considered South Texas. So it's a five hour drive south of Houston, literally a 10 minute drive to the Mexican border. You know, so it wasn't on anybody's radar screen. And then all of a sudden this shelter popped up and it's like, they have 30,000 animals coming through the shelter. Like it was crazy the volume that they were dealing with. And a few phone conversations you realize not only did they have a lot of animals coming in, they also didn't have a lot of resources. And so we started building the relationship. And and what we found out was that there were a lot of good-hearted people that wanted to do really well and do right by the animals down there. They just didn't have the resources to be able to manage the volume that they were they were working with. It became what really was the first of one of our embed programs where we took a best friend staff person and put them down there. And they basically spent two years uh, down at that shelter, helping them implement programs. And they've turned that shelter around to one that 
had a life-saving gap of about 22,000 animals to one that now is in the high 80s in the save rate. And it's just incredible when you're talking about the volume of animals that are being saved through that just one, one relationship. Yeah, the embed program is, is when you think about it, it's duh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. What a great idea, but we didn't do it. Nobody had done it like that, I don't think, right? So we actually put an employee there. I mean, it's really genius stuff. Yeah, and it, they knew they needed operational help, and they were looking to hire a director of operations. And they were, had posted something in the local newspaper and, and via various other resources, and they were getting a lot of local applicants. And I just remember talking to my boss, uh, Judah Batista, at the time, and I was like, boy, like I just don't know who they're going to find locally that has a lot of sheltering experience that can really be a director of operations. Like They're going to have to find somebody who's willing to move down there. And I don't know that this is on anyone's radar. And then I said, I really wish we could hire that person for them. And out of that conversation, it's like, well, why can't we? And that evolved into the part of it where it's like, okay, well, we're going to be sure that that person is somebody who's connected with best friends that we know has great sheltering experience from an operations perspective and got Michael Bricker to go in and start in that job and took that job sight unseen. He just agreed to pack up, move from New Jersey, never visited the shelter. He's just like, I just want to be a part of this. And, and and so it was a really cool opportunity for him as a real cool opportunity for the shelter to be able to do that. So you could bring that expertise from outside the region uh, and really infiltrate down there. So it's cool. And thankfully, he liked Edinburgh because it really could have gone the other way. And then what? Yeah, exactly. Right? But he actually liked the area. But um, so... The embed, you said two years, and obviously the success speaks for itself. The numbers are there uh, in a in a very again under resourced community, able to turn that around. But it's two years. Yep, we're now five years away from no kill twenty twenty five. So great idea, but how repeatable is it? So I mean, the good news is there aren't that many shelters out there that have that large of a life saving gap. Obviously, the part of the time that it took was because it was such a large shelter with such a huge resource gap. Uh, in order to achieve no kill. And so the good news is there aren't a lot of those. You know, if you look at the top 100 killing shelters in the country, the one that is number 100, like their gap's 1,400 animals. That's not a huge volume. And what we've been able to do through some of our learnings in the Palm Valley experience is that we've been able to do this at some smaller shelters in a much more cost-efficient way and a much quicker way. Uh, part of it's because it's a lighter lift when you're talking 1,400 animals versus 22,000 as a life-saving gap. But we've now done this. Uh, we've got a person down embedded into the shelter in Harlingen, the Harlingen Humane Society in Harlingen, Texas, which is in the neighboring county uh, from Edinburgh. So it's in the same same region. Uh, we have somebody in uh, the Santa Rosa shelter in Santa Rosa, Florida. So we're able to do this a little more quickly. Uh, for some of the regions that need it. Now, obviously, it's not sustainable for every shelter in the entire country to be able to do this, but for shelters that have a fairly significant lift, it's a worthy investment versus just throwing dollars at it sometimes, which is can feel like the solution, uh, but doesn't necessarily solve the operational gaps that are there. Okay, so we've got these top 100, we've got these priority shelters, tier one, and we know we're going to do some of them as embeds, right? But what about the rest of these? Maybe give everyone a, an example of another tier one community 
and maybe what's happening there that's not an embed. You know, one of them that we worked with early on was the shelter in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Uh, again, a very large shelter. They've taken about 22,000 animals a year, have a new director. He'd been with the program for a long time, but had just recently become the director and was implementing a lot of changes, but kind of hit sort of that wall of like, this is as far as he felt like he could go and he didn't know what else to do. Um, they've got an old shelter facility. They were having a lot of problems with the dog showing well in their their kennels. And so we actually had three best friends employees go and spend a week with them uh, on a different areas of their shelter and really work with them just on um, things like managed intake and how to better implement managed intake within their shelter walls and, and how to manage that process specifically for their shelter. We also worked through some behavior programs for them so that they were able to do more enrichment within the kennels and then also connect them with the Dogs Playing for Life program so they could do the playgroups program. So again, like connecting them with some of the resources that they needed to overcome some of their life-saving gaps. And that's a shelter that's, you know, right in, right around the 90% save rate now. And that's not where they were a couple of years ago when we first started working with them, but they've made tremendous strides there that they're definitely no longer a top 100 shelter, uh, but continue to make the progress after some of our initial conversations with them. So it's, they want to do differently. They want to save more lives. Maybe they just don't know how. It sounds like in some yeah. of these situations. And they have the leadership to like just be able to spend a week with them, show them some different tips and tricks, and then be able to implement them going forward. When you work at a shelter, you can often just see things just the way that you see them because that's the way it's always been done in your place. And it's always nice to have some outside eyes, just be able to look at things just a little bit differently of like, what, what would I do in that situation? All right. So now let's talk about tier two. Again, an example maybe of a community at this level. So the, the tier two, there are some some regions that are do, as a country that are doing better than others. So I think anybody who works in animal welfare at all knows that there's a bigger life-saving gap in the south than in the north. And that's why we do a lot of south to north transports. But there are still a lot of shelters in the north that still need some help. Uh, a lot of those need help with cats. And so that is where you know, we spend a fair amount of time working with them on policy, whatever the policy pieces are that keep them from being able to do like a, a return to field program for cats or a shelter neuter release program for cats. And so we really are working with them on a, on a policy piece of like, how can we get rid of that leash law for cats? How we can get the law changed so it's not considered abandonment, but really help you implement that program so that when a healthy cat comes into your shelter, that you have a, a way of like, just releasing it back to where it came from so that it can uh, go out to the neighborhood that it calls home. And and so a lot of those end up becoming policy type decisions with, with those groups. So we go from tier two to tier three. Mm -hmm. Example of a tier three community. The tier three are ones that we don't work a lot directly with. So this is usually comes to us um, through help with partners. So it might be a situation where we have a partner who is working with a larger shelter from a transport or rescue perspective. Uh, but once that larger shelter becomes a little bit more sustainable on their own, they still have these transport or adoption resources available to them. And so they're able to then go out to some of these smaller rural shelters that have a lot less resources uh, and pull animals into their program from those. You know, there's a group 
called Gigi's uh, in the state of Ohio. And their entire model is basically where they go out to rural shelters. A lot of these shelters will have one or two people who work at them. And they're usually one or two people who double as I care for animals. And I'm also doing the field services. So I care for the animals, close down the shelter, go out and on calls the rest of the day. And then I come back and care for the animals at night before I go home. And so they, they don't have a lot of ability to do localized adoptions because there's just nobody there to even be at the shelter. So Gigi's is a group based in kind of the Cincinnati area. They go out into the rural parts of the state pull in a whole bunch of animals into their program to do all the vetting, and then they send them out to adoption centers uh, to be adopted out. Like it's through groups like that, that we're reaching an awful lot of these smaller rural shelters that have very small life-saving gaps in the grand scheme of everything. But there are a lot of those shelters. Like there are over a thousand shelters that have a life-saving gap of less than 500 animals. And so it's really great when you have other people who, and other organizations that believe in the mission, believe in the life-saving work that's being done and, and being a part of those solutions. This all sounds great and perfect. And everybody wants to work with us. And all we have to do is put these things out there and whether it's an embed or this thing, and we're going to be done without going deep into the reasons that maybe people aren't interested in working with us or anyone for that matter. There are going to be communities that just aren't willing to work with us for whatever reason. So what are we doing there? A lot of the organizations that aren't doing well are not doing well because they have gotten rooted into the system of animal welfare that they've done for the last 20 years and are fairly isolated from a lot of what's changed. Like There's been a lot of positive change over the last decade. And the groups that are not doing well are not necessarily aware of those changes and those communities aren't necessarily aware of it. And so our goal in a lot of those cases is to connect them with someone somewhere the more connected they can be to anyone in the movement, the better off they're going to be. And if it's not best friends, uh, because they have a hesitation with best friends for whatever reason, or they have an aversion to the no-kill language, then it's important to connect them with somebody who doesn't necessarily fit that mold. And so maybe it's another partner, maybe it's another national organization like a Petco or a Maddie's Fund who can get in the door through the grants process um, because they're willing to take money a lot of times, and that can start that conversation. So just finding that way in, it's, you know, not that much different anytime you're looking to meet somebody important or influential, you find who else might know them that knows you that can help make that connection. We're four years into this. I know you said there was going to be a new data coming in, I believe you said next month, Yes, which is going to be very informative as to what happens now. But where are we four years into this point in terms of the effectiveness overall? I mean, Again, I just alluded to the fact that there's been so much progress over the last 10 to 15 years in animal welfare. If you look back at some of the historical information, we were forecasting that roughly 17 million dogs and cats were dying in America's shelters back in the 80s. Uh, last year, that number was 733,000. Are we able to kind of calculate the specific best friends impact, at least in our the areas where we've worked? So in the last four years, we can say that this 2025 plan has saved X amount. Are we? Do we calculate in that way? So in terms of the total volume of animals, I, I don't know that number. But what I can say that uh, when we look at the shelters that we're engaged with, those organizations are seeing a reduction in killed rate of about 30%. Whenever we work with them, 
they're engaged in the process, they're reducing the number of animals killed by 30%. On average, if it's a shelter that's not working with us and not engaged with us in a meaningful way, across the nation, that number is 8.5%. So we're seeing that when shelters are working with us, they're reducing their volume of animals killed by three times the measure of other organizations that aren't connected with us. And I think that's really powerful. Like, you know, we don't want people to work with us just for the sake of working with us. We want it to be valuable for them and for us and for getting to know Kill by 2025. And I think having three times the, the reduction in, in lives lost is a really a strong validation of that. New data coming, but you have already started to look at ways to shift this strategy based on where we are right now with four years down and five to go, what have been some of those discussions about those priorities? You know, I think the early part of our plan was really looking at some of these places with major life-saving gaps and knowing that we were going to have to dive in and roll up our sleeves to make large leaps at some of these priority shelters. This most recent rework, there was the reality of these thousand plus shelters that have a life-saving gap of less than 500 animals. And the reality, the best friends or any organization for that matter, doesn't have the bandwidth to go visit all of those and solve every one of those on a one-to-one basis. And so the revised plan that we came back in February with really involved how we're going to connect a lot more of our partners to each other. You know, I think when I first started doing a lot of this back in the early 2008, 9, 10 timeframe, there were only a handful of organizations that you could point to and is like, that's what no-kill success looks like. We now have 1,800 plus no-kill shelters out there. There's, There's a lot of places that are doing work really well that can help connect with each other. And if every one of those shelters was able to help one additional shelter, we could solve this problem in the next two years. And so it was really then focused on like, how are we going to find those places that are saving all the animals in their shelter and have the bandwidth to do just slightly more to help mentor somebody, to help pull a few animals in from other organizations to help them solve that life-saving gap. Yeah, we still need to help some of these places that need a lot more of a heavy lift. I don't think that that's fair for another organization to have to necessarily take that on. They're busy with their own shelters, but there are some that can do more. And I, and being able to mobilize that for some of these small shelters is vitally important. You said 1,800 no-kill shelters. That's out of 5,000 total. Mm -hmm. And you're saying the majority of those are small. Yes. Intake of 100, 250. And there are a lot of those. And I mean, hell, finding them and figuring out what is happening there and who's doing what, that's step one. Mm -hmm. But then we have to figure out who, who can help who. And, and that's part of where like we have 3,000 network partners by, as a part of the Best Friends Network. And a lot of those are shelters, so the brick and mortar shelters that we're talking about, but a lot of those are support agencies. So they're rescue groups, they're spay and neuter organizations. And it's like, how can we get them to be a part of this solution so that we don't have to do it by ourselves? And they all know the shelter and the neighboring community uh, that needs an awful lot of help that they can dive in and help. And if we can help some of those organizations to tackle this, then that's absolutely what we should be doing. I just want to be clear that this this is probably to some people going to sound like an ad for best friends. Um, <laughs> and I come at it from my perspective, which is I'm just damn proud to work here and work with a bunch of people who are who have identified these things and are smart as hell and then working their butts off to get it done. And I, so I do have a lot of pride and it may sound like an ad, but 
I don't care. Yeah, and I'm just really, I'm proud of the work that this team is doing every day. And I'm really excited to be a part of it because, man, like, I just remember that feeling four years ago of sitting out there like, I don't know that this is possible. And now I see how much good work is happening across in shelters across the country. And I'm like, damn, this is really going to happen. Like, we're we're going to get there soon. It just feels so promising because, again, when you have more organizations that are doing well and are eager to help and reach out to others, there's just that snowball effect where it just picks up steam faster and faster. And I just, I feel like that's what mode we're in right now. So Besselade plans, right? You know, everything that has been happening was set against this nationwide plan that did not map out contingencies in case there's a global pandemic. <laughs> so, you know, not all of the impacts on us, as we know, are bad, at least so far. So we've got the adoptions, we get this huge increase in foster homes. Is there any sense as to the impact of COVID-19 on the 2025 roadmap? Or do we just have to wait for the data, you know, once all this settles? Well, it's certainly not waiting. Like, you know, we can't sit here and wait to do anything for another nine months until new data comes in. Like, that's not a responsible thing. I think it may have enhanced our ability to get to 2025. There's a lot to be seen about how individual communities and shelter systems and the communities around those shelter systems react in the long term. But we did in the initial stages of COVID, we saw a huge influx of fosters, uh, which is great. Anytime there's community involvement in a shelter, it's fantastic. We also saw a lot of communities go to emergency only intakes at their shelter. And so anything that was a non-essential animal to come into the shelters, we encourage other outcomes that stay out in the community. Well, one of the programs that we've talked a lot about with Best Friends over the years is the idea of managed intake, uh, which is really managing that flow of animals into the shelter and really using that time to help be sure that the shelter is really the best place for the animal. Would this family keep it if we could just provide more resources for them, uh, either through some training and education, through providing them with a bag of food because they lost their job and they can't afford to feed themselves, let alone this pet? Uh, and really being more of a social services angle for this. You know, we've talked about this a lot as an industry, but I think that there's been some hesitation sometimes to get involved in that social services aspect. And COVID forced a lot of communities to do it. And they found out that there wasn't a lot of backlash from their community. In fact, it would ended up being a better community service because they're spending more individual time with people and pets. They're finding better outcomes besides to shelter for pets. People were coming to the shelter and getting one-on-one -on -one interactions instead of waiting in long lines to maybe surrender their pets. I'm really optimistic that this program that has sometimes, particularly on a municipal level, been hard to convince people that it was the right thing to do. When they saw it in action, they're like, yeah, this is the right thing to do. And so I think that there's some things in terms of that community engagement and around managed intake uh, or the social services type of model that I think has a lot of momentum right now. I hope that it can gain some traction and be something that we don't lose through this because it's been a real nice silver lining through COVID that I think will drive us closer to 2025 in a further way. We talked about uh, money earlier, particularly with the tier one um, organizations and communities, making sure that we're spending money as smartly as we can, but it still costs money. Mm -hmm. It would be wrong of us not to talk about the economy I feel like it just is going to have such an impact on everything we do. Is there any talk at this point of budgets and projections of what we think it will take from here on out? Are we prepping for that? Yes. I mean, you have to, right? Like, I think it's irresponsible to not expect 
a lot of these uh, municipal budgets to go down. I think private uh, donations will likely go down over time. Uh, but for sure on the municipal side, like the close down has caused them to lose so much tax revenue, they're going to have to start shaving budgets back. Some good news that has come out of it. I think we have recognized that animal sheltering and animal services is an essential business uh, in our communities and something that the community wants and the community cares a lot about. Tax dollars are usually a reflection of what the community says is important to them. And so I think that community engagement will be really important to help hold on to some of that. But that said, I think we're going to be continue to be tasked with finding solutions that are economical that are efficient, uh, that still save lives. I think the community engagement is, again, a big part of that. Like an animal and foster care costs a lot less money for the shelter than one that's in, in the shelter's care. And so those types of programs, I think, will be extremely beneficial uh, as we move forward, because I think a lot of us are going to be moving forward with 10 to 15% less budget, potentially, than what we're, what we're used to. And that will be unfortunate, but we have to figure out a way to do it without it costing us Lives saved. Now, this is the much clumsier John Dunn way to put this, but with fewer dollars, we are going to be forced to put programs in place that are more, shall we say, progressive, quote unquote, that save lives, whether we have some trepidation over those programs or not. Necessity is the mother of invention. And so the, we're, we're going to see that a little bit here. If I'm, um, let's start with uh, a shelter employee. If I'm a shelter employee, in a community, I don't know what tier I am, but I know, hey, I could really use best friend's help. What do I do? So the best place to start is if you know that you have a, a gap of some type, uh, is dive into your own data and figure out where those gaps are. Like what animals in your shelter are the ones that are losing their lives that you think are savable? Find a group of them and find the largest group of them and say, okay, if it's dogs that have parvo or it's neonatal kittens or whatever that group happens to be for you, it's like, okay, I'm going to solve a problem for this group of animals. And we have a ton of resources on our network website that you can go in and find a lot of testimonials, a lot of case studies of how you do a neonatal kitten program, either through a foster program or through a kitten nursery. Uh, if you want to talk to an individual, reach out to your regional director or regional specialist. We have people in every region across the country. We divide the country into eight regions, and there are about 22 of us that are, um, our jobs are to answer the calls and, and help connect you with the resources, help coach you through some of this. And if you can just say, hey, like this is the largest group that's dying in my shelter, help me. Uh, we'll be able to help coach you through some of it. Now, if I'm a supporter, a volunteer, I'm a board member, and I, again, I'm not, I'm not even sure what's going on in my community. I know we're not at 90%, but what can I do? You know, I think if you don't know what's going on in your community, we also at bestfriends.org slash 2025, you can see a map and we'll, you'll be able to go into the uh, map, go down to your community and dive into your individual shelter that's in your community and see what's going on there. We're, we've made all of our data public for everyone to be able to get engaged in that way. But the simplest way is just to ask. Uh, I think most shelters, if you walk in and, and talk to them, it's like, hey, like, how can I help and be a part of the solution for you? Find out what they need. Find out from them what they feel like that they would need uh, and be a part of the solution for them. I think our natural tendency a lot of times is to get upset and uh, start blaming everybody at the shelter for all the, the problems that they have when oftentimes we as community members can rally more community support for them. And if they had that additional community support, we could help them overcome those hurdles. Find out from their data. You can dive into the data and find out what animals are falling through the cracks for them and really 
then help figure out what programs they need, uh, whether it's more kitten fosters, whether it's large dog fosters. Maybe they need somebody to come in and help them uh, with a playgroup program. I, th- I think there are a lot of different options for that that can be helpful. So you've alluded to it, um, but let's talk about the goal of connection with 2025, the sharing, the networking. You know, Obviously, we know about the Best Friends National Conference, but that's not enough. Yeah, I think one of the most important parts of that all of this is that I think we acknowledge that this is hard. Like if it were easy, we would all be there and would have all taken care of it. And I'm so grateful when I came up from the sheltering side before I joined Best Friends of all of the support I got for people that I call out and that would help mentor. And I could just ask questions and it's like, A, sometimes it would be I get helpful advice and sometimes it would be them just confirming I'm not completely crazy about thinking this is kind of messed up. And so I think that part of all of this is really important to be able to connect with other people who are walking in the same hard steps that you're walking in. And so we've got a lot of opportunities to do that. Like, you know, we've got the national conference, which I think is the best thing that we do. And it's not just a learning opportunity. It's a great opportunity to get connected with people. It's a great way to learn things, but then it's also a great way to feel energized. Like, I feel like we all get beaten up a lot every single day and to walk away full of energy is just an amazing feeling. So you can go back to the hard work that lays ahead. Uh, but we also started doing some things on the regional side so that we'll have regional or state summits that'll be smaller. There'll be one day, and but there will still have a lot of leaders in the region that can talk about their programming to help you connect with other people who are closer to home that might have more similar problems to what you have than somebody that lives 3,000 miles away across the country. And then we have our Network Partners program and our Network Partners Facebook page that once you become a Network Partner and you sign up to be a part of the group, uh, you can just ask questions of your peers of like, we're having a tough time with our software platform or we're having a tough time with this in our community. And it can be so valuable to be able to make those connections, have your peers help solve the problems so that you can make some of those connection points. You know, one of the things I thought was a really valuable thing that came out of our our conference last year is I was in a conversation with a person that was a rescuer in Dallas. And when the new director came into Dallas Animal Services, they made a lot of changes and it involved some hard conversations with the rescue community because like what what they needed help with at the shelter was different than it was just say six months ago. And it's like for you to, as a rescue community, to be the most value to us at the shelter, we now need your help on this. Another shelter director from another fairly large community reached out to that that rescuer and was just like, can you come and speak in my community, to my rescue community about how this worked in Dallas? And it was a really powerful moment of like, now we're taking this idea of what this conversation that was a hard conversation that happens everywhere. And then we were like, can you help be a mentor to my rescue groups in my community to help them understand how this helped Dallas to see, achieve some of the life-saving success that they've had. Those connection points are invaluable, and I just encourage people to find them either through our Best Friends Conference, our summits, our Network Partners Program, or somewhere, uh, because the more connected you'll be, the, the better, more success you'll have. Thank you to McKenna, Jill, and Brent, and Julie for being a badass. Thank you to Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. They're the producers of this podcast. Check out the website. Like always, you'll find all of the links and information from today's episode. Please take care of yourselves, each other, and be safe. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.